HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRM podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Somerset County Tourism. Hear stories from local brewers and distillers from the New Jersey Sip and See Trail on episode 647 of Beer Sessions Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Dan Bender. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. My guest this week is Teresa Politano, a finalist in the upcoming 2022 International Association of Culinary Professionals Food Writing Awards for her essay, Don't Forget the Tomatoes for My Funeral which was published in Gastronomica 21.3. Teresa is the former editor of Edible Jersey magazine, a winner in 2018 of a IACP award, and she holds an MFA from the Vermont College of Fine Arts. She's an award-winning journalist, author, and an adjunct professor at Rutgers University. She's published widely in newspapers across the United States, and is the author of two books, single-handed, and celebrity chefs of New Jersey. Thank you, Teresa. Congratulations on the nomination, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. It's really an honor. It's really an honor to be here today. So, Teresa, you've written very widely in your work. Um, I'm just looking at your website, and you've interviewed chefs. You've served as a restaurant critic. And broadly, what does your work in general look at? What are some of the big questions that drive you as a food writer? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think what I'm looking for in my own life and through food is authenticity. Um, so I think if that, that's what I seem to be searching for, <clears throat> you know, as a writer, uh, realizing that food connects us connects our emotions, uh, connects us to a lot of spiritual events, family events, community events. And for me, that experience, you know, uh, connects us to each other. And to understand that, I think that's what my goal, my own personal journey has been about, 
for many, many years. And that's fascinating. And I, I want to dig into that question of authenticity right, right off the bat, because it's something I think in this particular essay, you express a great deal of sadness, frustration, anger, uh, when it isn't there. Um, as we dive into that authenticity question, what, do you have a definition right at the top of what you see as authentic, authenticity, authentic food, and maybe how it shapes your own cooking, life, eating, work? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a challenge to describe authenticity. I think it's one of those questions where you know it when you see it. You know, why is something real to you um, or not? Is it very situational in that sense? Yes, actually, I think that it, it very much can be. I mean, something, you know, Dan, it's interesting. You were talking, I listened to one of your um, your own podcasts, and you were talking about tradition and the idea that you can... Uh, shape your own traditions, and it might not be something directly from your your family or from your heritage, but it still is an authentic experience because you know because you put the time into it because it's meaningful to you um, because you've made it your own. So in that way, it's very authentic. Um, so yes, I would say that it's it's situational. But what does you know what does authenticity mean? Um, you know, this particular essay has so many layers of, of a backstory and, and, um, can you share some of that backstory? Oh, I would love to, because it's, it's kind of, um, mystical in a way to me. Um, so I was, uh, uh, in the middle of my MFA Process. I got an MFA, <clears throat> started that program, I think, in uh, 2019. And one of my first faculty advisors was Richard McCann, who is an amazing, who was an amazing writer, uh, who was on the board of the Penn Faulkner Foundation and who taught in the MFA program at American University. So I was working with him on this idea of funeral food, and Richard McCann you know, had a liver transplant, and he was writing often about that process and working on a book called The Resurrectionist. So he was fascinated by this idea of funeral food, and um, it became, uh, you know, I was really lucky to be able to work with him, and he took sort of the pieces that I had put together, you know, my cousin's funeral which was, which was a very sad event for me. You know, my cousin and I had grown up together. We played hopscotch together. We played jump rope together. Um, and then we went our separate ways. And when she died, I felt that um, her funeral was unjust and seemed to be more about efficiency than to really honor her life. And here we were in small town America where, you know, we're supposed to be taking care of each other. And um, I felt that she really didn't get the funeral she deserved. Um, so we ha I had a lot of those discussions with, 
with um, with Richard McCann, who encouraged me to take the essay even further. And I was working on that. And then Richard died in January 2021. Um, and when I heard the news, I was just devastated. And I felt I need to get this essay finished and out into the world. Um, and so I worked on it based on his recommendations. And I, I uh, submitted it to Gastronomica. And then on the day of his memorial service uh, by VCFA uh, in April of the same year was, was when I found out that the essay had been accepted for publication. There's a story of, of redemption and, and rebirth in there. I'm, I'm glad we were part of it. Um, Teresa, you began this article, which is amusing, about funeral foods, authenticity, real food, comfort, family, rural life. And you begin it by talking about that funeral of your cousin. And you, you mentioned that you thought it was unjust. Can you tell us how? Well, my cousin, um, my cousin had a difficult life. You know, and she uh, she didn't necessarily fit the mold of the perfect daughter or the perfect uh, you know member of the community in in the town we grew up in, um, which could be pretty judgmental. Uh, but she was a very good person, and she was young. You know, she was in her fifties when she died, and she really died of heartbreak because her daughter had died. Uh, two years before, and she had never really recovered from that. Um, so, you know, for me, it was very much uh, uh, a reckoning with my own mortality because she and I were the same age. And, um, and, and sort of a homecoming in a way, you know, I had been to my family home many times, but not necessarily for for a funeral event like this one. Um, and it just seemed, seemed the opposite of what I had grown up with, you know, seemed the opposite of sort of this love and foundation and um, caring. There's a sense of, 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 of real frustration that comes through in, in the writing and that, that, seem to focus through the food and also at the food itself. If I might just read um, briefly your words for our listeners here. Um, uh, after the funeral, you all went um, and had food in the church itself. And now I'll quote, in the corner, desserts awaited on a small table. The cakes, also store-bought, were sticky sweet. Powdered artificial creamer was available for the coffee which was tepid and weak. The pies were not homemade either. Can you take us back to that moment and share some of the emotions that you felt as you noticed those store-bought cakes and the artificial creamer? I must say, I'm, it's a beautiful description and that, that unbelievable frustration over sticky sweet cakes and artificial creamer seems to encapsulate a whole life itself. It was very frustrating. I mean, my grandmother, I, I baked bread with my grandmother and she would teach me how to punch down the dough and she made pies and she made, you know, so to me, these were the people who knew how to do this, you know, to bake bread and make pies. And 
this should be what you do to take care of each other. Um, and yet, you know, everything was very convenient at this funeral. The, everything was store-bought and um, uh, nothing felt personal or real. And yet this was very intimate family. So it felt very cheap. How did it shape the experience? Like, how did it shape just the conversation, the interactions? I felt it felt very forced. Um, you know, we we. I, Nobody has a good conversation around store bought cake. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. You know, I think as a child, when my grandmother died, and um, and you went to the funeral, and it was, uh, and then you went afterward, and you had. You had a meal together, and it was a beautiful experience, and people were laughing. And at first, you're not, you're, that felt a little irreverent. Why, why is everyone laughing? Why are people having fun? And you realize, like, no, this is part of it. This is the beauty of it. This is the life part of it. This is the ritual, the reminder that, um, you know, death makes us hungry. And we want to consume and enjoy and... You know, I, I learned that uh, when I was 12, when my grandmother died. It was a beautiful um, experience. And then a, this funeral... I was just going to say that there's a... That what you just said, that line really sticks out to me. Death makes us hungry. And just, can you say some more about that? Because that, that's, that's going to shape my self-thinking for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> Well, but it's true when, uh, you know, you want to consume life, you want to enjoy as much as you can. It's a reminder that, you know, life is short and do what you love, be with the people you love. Um, It does make us hungry. It should make us hungry. It should be a reminder, you know, that we need to be doing what we need to be doing. But it's more than a self-sustenance. It's more than a we're stressed, we're sad, so we eat, right? It's, it's a good chance to step back for a moment and just recognize that virtually every culture and every religion, we can go back to the ancient Ro- Greeks, Romans, Egyptians, every religion has some ritual of food giving and food serving at death rites, at funerals. Why is that, do you think? Well, you know, that's a great question. And I've been thinking a lot about uh, about rituals because that's really, in essence, what, what, this, what this question began, how this began. What is your ritual? What do you do? How do you mark someone's death? And, and that's the, really the central question of this whole essay, really. Right. But then what if it's not a ritual? Right. I mean, is it a ritual to just deliver, get a pick up a store bought cake? Like, are you really going through the process? And the the idea for me, my thinking is that in order for it to be in some way, um, in order for us to be able to process it, we need to actually physically do something. We the rituals are there to help us physically process what has happened. So if you are preparing a meal, 
And if there is a ritual surrounding that preparation and a ritual surrounding the sharing of that meal, then the whole process is part of the healing um, or the beginning of the healing. But if the ritual, no matter what it is, doesn't necessarily exist, then are we denying ourselves sort of that process of healing? And there's um there's many levels of reciprocity, I think, that what you're saying here, right? That there's the food offered by those closest to those who've taken the time out of their lives to mourn the dead. And then there's those who are farther away offering food, gifts, nourishment to those who've suffered most directly the loss. And then maybe there's that third reciprocity of those who've passed, passing on some of their foods and honoring those who have past. How does one make sense of, am I missing some reciprocities? And how does one make sense of those? That's a really great question. And I think uh, just what you said, it's just layers and layers of of reciprocity. Um, You know, I just read Crying in H Mart, which which is really about food and death as well. And one of the things that struck me about that book is uh, was a was um, the story of the author. Uh, well, first she said, "How do I even know if I'm Korean if I if I don't have my mother here with me in H Mart to help me uh, choose the food?" Um, but in, in the process of of dealing with her mother's death, um, she talks about going to therapy and feeling sort of unsatisfied by that process because she's talking about the things that she had been talking about and contemplating over and over and over for many, many months. And and then she turns and starts making kimchi and talks about how challenging that is and how time-consuming it is and yet how satisfying it becomes. And it's hours and hours and then weeks and weeks, and then she, you know, starts um, making kimchi not only for herself but her friends and family, and and I felt that that process, that physical making of the kimchi, um, somehow is more healing than we recognize. So, in other words, that you know, when for many people, food can be ordered, catered up, delivered so easily that the nourishment of food at at a death retains a certain importance. Right. Now, there's also a sense of social un- unraveling and uh, and that this this social unraveling, the New York, Pen- sorry, New Jersey, Pennsylvania area seems to come into clear focus in your own experiences of the funerals that once were and the funerals as they are today. Can you comment on that? Thoughts on on that, that sense of social unraveling and how you ground this particular story in place? Um, The social unraveling became a big question, certainly during the pandemic. Do we, you know, when everyone felt cheated um, about the funeral rituals, you know, you couldn't have 
a proper funeral. People couldn't gather. Um, so you felt doubly lost, right? You know, that you suffered a double loss. Um, what I found with asking questions about this essay, and certainly this was not a scientific study, is there an actual unraveling? Are we doing less than we used to be doing? But what struck me in particular about asking these questions is that people really wanted to talk about the food at their funerals. And, um, and I would end up in these amazingly rich conversations with almost anybody about what happened at so-and-so's funeral. Um, one, of my, one of my colleagues uh, uh, had a long discussion about champagne you know, because the essay, in the essay, I, I end it by saying, please, you know, celebrate at my funeral. Please bring tomatoes. Please bring champagne. And, um, and there's a, you know, one of my colleagues has an amazing story about a family fight centered around whether champagne should or not be served at someone's funeral. But this discussion, I think, opens the door for people to talk about grief and loss and um, in, in a unique way, in a, in a sideways way. So it allows people to talk about the people they've lost um, and what they may or may not, you know, what they may miss about those people in a way that's approachable and um, uh, opens the door to unlocking some of that grief. And, and grief doesn't necessarily need to entail uh, for lack of a better word, gastronomic suffering, does it? I mean, you know, grief is real. And and I think that if you have real food, the authenticity of it, um, it's very grounding. So as you think about the area, and my sense in reading your piece is that it's as much about the death of people as it is the death of of industry, of agriculture, of, of skills within families in the, in the areas that you were experiencing and living. Um, are we equipped to feed each other, not on a day-to-day level, but are we equipped to feed each other in those moments of grief? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, How's that for a Sunday morning? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's a brunch topic, right? <laughs> sad brunch topic, but yes. Well, I mean, no, it's a great question, though. I feel that if if you know what to do with the tomato that comes from your garden, right, then you're closer to the natural world. You're closer to, um, uh, y- you know, you're more grounded. You're, it, it connects you to a larger ecology, so to speak, you know, so if, if you um, are able to feed each other, because you understand, you know, what happens to pasta when you put it into water, or, you know, you understand when to add the salt or whatever, you know, you are, uh, it's, it's a more spiritual experience because you're you're sort of closer to that c- community, that commonality, um, 
to that authentic experience, you're not just living in sort of a more manufactured, man-made world. So I think that that, that, that knowledge, that authenticity um, helps us connect because it, it, it eliminates the artifice. So let's take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment. I'm Jimmy Carboni, host of Beer Sessions Radio on HRN. I recently hosted a live podcasting event with local beer and spirits makers from beautiful Somerset County, New Jersey. We spoke on the farm that is home to Flounder Brewery and Belmar Distillery, one of the most beautiful stops along the Sip and See Craft Beverage Trail. To me, those two worlds, brewery and distillery, are extremely complementing businesses, especially in a unique location like this. So it immediately helped this become a destination to have a great experience, whether it's the beer atmosphere we've got going in here on the old barns or the great experience you can have in there with these incredible cocktails that are created there. It's complementary to each other. You can have two completely different experiences all within a 10-foot walk from each other. Before the event, I was able to tour the area and see the historic Bridge Tender's house along the serene DNR Canal, walk the bike and hiking trails, and take in the lush farmland. Then we settled into the centuries-old Dutch barn turned brewery for a lively discussion. It was always important for us to create our space, our livelihood that we want to share with everybody else, of being a community-centric location. It is what makes us a brewery in this state different from a barn or restaurant. Um, you know, we're obviously family-friendly here. Um, we have a lot of different groups that have their meetings here during the week. We just really want to become a community hub. You can listen to this episode of Beer Sessions Radio, available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to Somerset County Tourism for supporting this episode. Learn more about the Sip and See Passport Program at visitsomersetnj.org. That's visit s-o-m-e-r-s-e-t-n-j.org. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on Heritage Radio Network. I am Dan Bender talking with Teresa Politano about her article, Don't Forget the Tomatoes for My Funeral, published in Gastronomica and a finalist for the 2022 IACP Food Writing Awards. Teresa, as we come back, I want to read you another quote that really jumped out to me from your piece. You write, quote, People die and someone drops off chicken from Costco or a weird container of rice pudding from ShopRite. Does the thought of the giving of the food matter? Or is it really also the food itself? And this is where we get to this question of authenticity. Is real food real emotions? You know, that tradition to sort of drop off a lot of casseroles in uh, when someone dies, I think from from my questions to other people that maybe that doesn't happen as often as it did in the past. But people are giving other gifts that might be equally thoughtful. You know, if um, uh, perhaps, you know, if 
you know, perhaps someone gives a gift of flowers or a, um, not flowers, but a, a plant, a garden gift, you know, for someone who loves her garden and who's suffered a loss. So you're, you know, I guess the idea, the authenticity comes with knowing um, and being thoughtful about the person involved. And that that's really the kind of the question too, right? I mean, comfort food, we often think about comfort food as something for, for daily life, right? Like you've had a bad day, you want something particularly personally, meaningfully comforting. But you're reintroducing that concept in a way, I think, in this piece. Did thinking about funerals help you revisit the idea of what comfort food is meant to be? I think so. You know, comfort food, I mean, a lot of us, uh, a lot of us in America think of comfort food as, as a grilled cheese sandwich, which is very much a comfort um, and almost universal. Um, so it needn't be complicated and it needn't necessarily um, require t- tremendous culinary skills. Uh, you know, you need to be patient to make a perfect grilled cheese sandwich, and you sh- you should understand how how the crust can be perfectly browned and the cheese perfectly melted. And maybe if you um, cut it on an angle, you know, and 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 serve it in a certain way, it it can be very comforting. Um, so it that can be very authentic, even though it's not necessarily. Um, challenging to prepare you know how do we how do we nurture each other um and how do we nurture each other at the moment we when we need it most you know when we are really grieving the loss of someone else Mm -hmm. so and and i think the way part of what i'm hearing there is that authenticity is not for you something that exists as a some kind of it is it or isn't you pass a line in the cooking and it becomes an authentic pie or an authentic grilled cheese sandwich, but it becomes authentic. And you, and you use the word in the piece, real food, which I think is a very evocative term, uh, but it, it becomes real food at the moment that it's given the place that it's consumed I, I think that a lot of listeners are going to have their own ideas about real food in real places and in real emotions. What is it for you? Oh, that's a great question, too. And people, you know, as a restaurant critic, uh, people would often ask me, like, what's your favorite restaurant or what's your favorite food? And I have no answer. <laughs> like, it's a really pathetic question for me because... Um, you know, you can feel it when someone is passionate about what they do. Um, and your favorite food, my favorite food changes based on my mood, uh, based on the time of year, based on so many factors. And, um, and I always loved, you know, um, I, I always love to hear from chefs who really cherished a personal invitation to someone's home for dinner and often never received it because uh, people would be terrified about 
inviting a chef over to my house and my humble food, I could never measure up. Whereas meanwhile, the chef was looking for real, you know, just that, that idea, like a, a, a humble family dinner would be a celebration for, for a chef and they uh, would cherish, cherish that kind of experience. Um, so, you know, that's a challenging question to answer too, but, you know, and, and it, and it all circles back to authenticity, as you said. And, and the relationship with, with the deceased. In other words, I think there is that sense as you move in your essay from thinking about New Jersey and Pennsylvania and, and, and sweep widely and, and think about as far afield as, as Ireland, that there is something about meaningful food that makes meaningful events that can accomplish something that a store-bought pie cannot. Um, maybe that's something to, that you can reflect upon from your own experiences in traveling beyond your own experiences of, of personal funerals in which you were personally attached to, to asking others about their funeral experiences. And I think there's a joke in the essay about rhubarb pie, right? And um, rhubarb pie was something that I grew up with. My, both of my grandparents, you know, knew what to do with rhubarb. And it was always a celebration because it was the first sign of spring. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and we loved like the tartness of rhubarb. And um, in a rhubarb sauce or a pie or what have you. And n- later in life, I had a, I had a rhubarb <clears throat> dessert at a very, very fancy restaurant. Uh, and I cried because it took me immediately back to my great-grandmother's table, you know, in a stunning way because it was, it was appropriately tart. It was, um, it was not too sugary. Uh, it, it, uh, respected the taste of the rhubarb and, um, think, you know, like that would be an ideal funeral food for me if, you know, if, uh, if, my grandmother was still alive, like that would be the thing to bring to her funeral because that was something she did really well. Um, and that would be in honor of her um, and a way to sort of respect her and remember her. Uh, I don't know, do you, one of the things, as I said earlier about this essay is that it generated so much conversation. Did you have the same reaction? Do you have a oh, funeral Oh, absolutely. I, 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 I just want people to eat well and a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's so many foods. I mean, there's also a part of me that, that, um, that thinks about the, the last meal that you get to eat with others and living those meals um, uh, with others as if they're the last meal in a, in a strange COVID-inflected sort of way. Mm. Did you have a fu- funeral food? Exp- like, what would be at your funeral, fu- ideally? Oh gosh, I love the idea of champagne. <laughs> champagne sure, sure. and and quite honestly, drink down the wine cellar. 
<laughs> open up all the bottles that I was too too stingy to have opened during my life. <laughs> right, and right. Save me a glass too. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, and and I gosh, I would love to have people write into the journal itself, sharing some of those those passing ritual foods but also and you know your question there it gets me thinking about the certain kinds of foods that people feel like they're not allowed to eat at funerals whether that's in certain cultures you know whether that's the garlic and onions or or whether it's it's something that just seems too festive or the champagne as well that you bring up why do we deny us ourselves some of those foods at funerals I, you know, that's a great question. And the wine question is a really great question, too. I mean, here in New York, one of my friends, you know, after September 11th, or on September 11th, you know, spent the day drinking all of his good wines. Like, what, what was I thinking? You know, why am I saving these? What, what kind of special occasion is it? Every day is a special occasion. And we, you know, human, we have to be reminded of this over and over again. Um, but that's the same hunger, you know, that we feel when, when there's a death, like wait, um, uh, a reminder that we need to appreciate what we have and we need to. It's a sort of regrouping as a way with and through the person who's passed. Exactly. So, so Teresa, that gives us a great opportunity as we get towards the end here. Why shouldn't we forget the tomatoes? Oh, the tomatoes. The tomatoes were amazing. Um, Tell us about the tomatoes. Well, you know, I, I, um, I live in New Jersey now. We have amazing tomatoes in New Jersey, and I refuse to eat tomatoes at any other time of year aside from when they are, you know, ripe here and local, which can be a very long season. Um, but my and. You know, obviously, New Jersey is not the only place where you can get amazing tomatoes. But my aunt, um, who was 88 when she died, uh, had the same sort of funeral food that I had mentioned in the essay. And what, what had happened in, uh, in, in the area was that in order to sort of streamline the process... The church ladies all made the same foods. They were always ready for a funeral. They had ham in the freezer. They had cans of green beans. They had uh, potatoes ready to make. And every funeral, was every, you know, every um, gathering after a funeral at these churches was exactly the same. Depressing um, food for depressing occasions. <laughs> very depressing, very depressing. But then my my aunt, as I said, she was 88 years old, and bless her, she um, I think she actually got on. Her, she knew, she knew she was. Um, I think she knew she was dying, and she got on her her grandson's motorcycle. Asked her grandson to take her for a motorcycle ride. So one of these great photos from the end of her life is her holding on to him. Uh, riding off into the sunset, literally, on this motorcycle. I think they're going like five miles an hour, but the picture looks just uh, terrific. And But she had tomatoes in her garden. She was still gardening. The tomatoes were ripe. It was August. And someone, rather than, oh, we might as well just take them over to the church rather than allowing them to go to waste. And 
I thought they were the most amazing things. Just a paper plate with sliced tomatoes on it. Just a beautiful, beautiful uh, homage to her and her love of gardening uh, and her skill at 88 to still be able to garden and produce such beautiful uh, tomatoes. And, and they were just perfect. They were ripe, a little bit of salt. And I was six years old again, you know, eating tomatoes from the garden over the sink um, when they were ripe. And it, it, was, it was really a beautiful experience. I like to um, think I, of those seeds, the tomato seeds, being saved and replanted. Right. So, that, yeah. Yeah. That, that's just, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm Memorial, hoping, right? <laughs> it, it was a beautiful, um, it was a beautiful moment for me. And it was sad, too, because I, I think I was the only one <laughs> eating the tomatoes, um, which was okay, but I guess... And thinking about champagne, no less. Mm -hmm. True. Well, thank you so much, Teresa, for joining us. Listeners can read the full piece in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. Over the coming weeks, we'll talk with authors from our latest issue, volume 22.3, now available online and in print, which explores themes of transformation, adaptation, and preservation. Join us next week as we speak with Matthew Miduri about Serbian-style fried chicken and the role of the chicken house in the magic city. And subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts to stay updated on our newest episodes. The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.